Open your Bibles up with me uh, to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, This passage that we're going to study this morning is one of the most amazing sermons in the whole Bible. Uh, uh, One of the most amazing sermons uh, by Peter. It's just just beautiful. And it starts with the words, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. So you know if a sermon starts with the words, come on guys, I'm not drunk. It's got to be good, right? Uh, there's a there's a little bit of a, a backstory uh, to that, and so I want us to be able to understand exactly why Peter starts his sermon in that weird way. Last week we read about uh, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this like amazing, miraculous, powerful way, where the Spirit just comes upon and indwells the disciples at Pentecost, just like Jesus had promised. And the apostles, they're all together, they're praying, the loud rushing wind fills the room, and these tongues of fire separate out and land on each one of them, representing the presence of God there with them and in them. And the result of that, the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that they begin to speak. They begin to proclaim the wonders of God in all of these different languages. And then, and then they take the party outside. And all of these different people that have come to celebrate this Jewish holiday hear people speaking in their own language. And it's amazing. And it, and it draws a crowd. And they're all thinking, how is this even possible? How is it possible that we're all hearing these uneducated Galileans speaking our language? Something weird is happening here. The Holy Spirit opened the mouths of the disciples to be able to speak and to proclaim about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit opened the ears of the hearers so that they could hear all the wonders of Jesus. But there's some people, right? There's some. And it doesn't really say who. Maybe it's Pharisees. Maybe just like pagans. People who just are hard against God. Who who don't hear anything. They can't hear all the wonders that God has done because they're just so deaf to it. All they hear is foolishness, babbling. Their conclusion is these people must be drunk. They're just mocking God and what God is doing. It seems like there's always people who refuse to hear no matter how loud and clear God speaks. Fortunately, that is not the case with everyone. Many of the people there hear their own language coming out of these guys and they recognize that it's a miracle and they ask the logical question that you would ask, what does this all mean? What's happening? Someone has to explain what this means. And so Peter stands up and he explains. Look, I'm going to start in verse 12, kind of backing up a little bit and they They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind. 
and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I'll grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, wow. So here, in, in detail, using Scripture, Peter explains to this Jewish crowd exactly what this means. First of all, we're not drunk. All right, let's just get that straight. That's not what this means. It's only 9 a.m. What this means is that there is a God who keeps his promises. That's what this means. There's a God who said this was going to happen hundreds and hundreds of years ago, all the way back to a guy named Joel. And, and the, the audience that he's preaching to, they would have been good students of the Old Testament. They would have known all about the, the promises that God has made to send a Savior. They would have read Joel and understood this passage. But it had been a long time, right? I mean, there's over 400 years of silence just between the end of the Old Testament with the prophet Malachi and, and the arrival of Jesus. There's been a long time. And they aren't sure exactly when those promises are going to be fulfilled or how. And, and I, I'm pretty sure that they weren't expecting them to be fulfilled that day. But God had not forgotten and what they were all witnessing was exactly what God had promised. And, and, and the biggest piece of that promise is God saying, I'm going to pour forth my Spirit on all men. It'll be in those last days. God says that I'll pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit. On, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was there. The Spirit of God was still at work and, and was given at, at different times in specific situations, often for just a short period of time to accomplish a specific task. So this isn't like it's the first day of the Holy Spirit. or They didn't have any understanding of what this meant. It, it was just way different. The, the Spirit in the Old Testament empowered certain people to be able to uh, construct the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, the Spirit of God would anoint uh, certain kings. But the Spirit of God was not given to all believers. Not like He is now. The Spirit of God also is responsible for the inspiration of the Word of God. The Spirit empowers the prophets to be able to speak what God wants His people to hear. The Spirit of God is the member of the Trinity that, that works through us and powers us as frail, messed up, sinful people to be able to accomplish God's will here on this earth. And God is speaking again. That's what this means. A New Testament was going to be written the same way that the Old Testament was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. 
What Peter tells the crowd is what this means today is that the Holy Spirit has been dumped out on us. And every believer in Jesus Christ will receive that Spirit of God. Everyone, everyone gets to be empowered now to preach the Word of God. Everyone now gets to have that, that Spirit of God who, who guides them and leads them. And now, now there's no more, no more priest that's necessary to be some sort of intermediary. That's, Jesus was the last one. He's the perfect one. Now we have this direct connection to God. And not only that, but God is right here in us through His Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what this means. That's what you're seeing. Also, what this means is that we've entered into the last days. Did you catch that? He mentions that in a, in a couple different ways. And right off the bat, it shall be in the last days. That's, that's now. That's now, Peter says. We've entered into this final phase of redemptive history. It all started uh, right after the fall, right? God promised that there would come one who would crush the serpent on its head. God promised to Abraham that all the people of the earth would be eventually blessed through him. God gave this system of, uh, of sacrifice and atonement uh, uh, through Moses and and through the law, but all with the promise that something better was coming. And Jesus was that something. He was the one that inaugurated the new covenant, who, who brought about this new covenant. He even said so at the Last Supper, right? He holds up the cup and says, this is the, it's the cup of my blood, which is the new covenant in my blood. Old covenant's over. The new covenant of grace and faith is is here now. And at the end of this phase of redemptive history that we're still in right now, at the end of that, Jesus is coming again. Right? Just, just like it said in, in uh, chapter 1 of Acts. If you remember that from a few weeks ago, Jesus ascends into heaven. All of His uh, disciples are, are like staring up into the clouds as He's disappeared and and angels have to come and say, stop looking up at the clouds. It's weird. Like he's, He'll come back the same way you saw Him go. In the meantime, go do the stuff that He told you to go do. And here, at the end of uh, that passage I just read there from Acts 2, it talks a little bit about what the end of that phase of redemptive history before Jesus comes back is going to look like. Starting at 19, I'll grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Sounds a lot like Revelation there, right? Very Revelation-y. It's coming a time when Jesus is coming again. The day of Pentecost means that the Spirit is poured out. It means that we've entered into the last days. It means that we're now under this new covenant. And it means that salvation is wide open to everyone. That's really one of the main themes that we see repeated over and over again and played out throughout the history of Acts where we see a bunch of people get saved right there in Jerusalem who are Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. And then pretty soon we're going to see a whole bunch of Samaritans get saved. And then pretty soon we see Gentiles even getting saved. It's everybody is in now. 
Verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Old Covenant was for Jewish people. Again, those are His chosen people. and Back there, God made that promise to Abraham. And part of that promise was that all nations would be blessed through you. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And remember again, back in Acts 1, Jesus says, okay, you're going to receive My Spirit, and then you're going to go be My witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And again, that's not just a, a geographical thing. It's not just about locations. It's, it's a nationality thing. You're going to go be My witnesses, first to the Jewish people who need to hear that their Savior has come, and then to Samaritans who were like kind of this weird half-breed, not fully Jewish, but fully Gentile. And then to the ends of the earth, even Gentiles get to hear about salvation through Jesus. And later on, uh, Paul explains this in a little bit more detail to a church that was had a lot of Jewish people that didn't really understand how and why salvation could be open to everybody. Didn't really get that the old covenant was over and that there was a new thing. And Galatians is very transitional in that way. So here's what Paul says in Galatians 3.26. He says, For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? Understand that. It's not about being a, a child of Abraham anymore. You're all sons of God if you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus. He says, for you're all baptized into Christ and you've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and that promise that God made to Abraham way back then, that salvation would be on all people, you get the benefit of that. Awesome. That's what this means. Entrance into the family of God no longer means being united with the family of Abraham, but being united with Jesus. And salvation is open to everyone because Jesus has conquered death. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to find ways to atone for it anymore. Jesus is beaten. Look at the next portion here. Acts, starting in 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. 
So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Here, Peter is saying, Jesus is the One that God's been promising. And this is, this is really the heart of Peter's message. It's all about Jesus. And the quote from Joel is a reminder of all those promises that God had made. Really, it's just to help his Jewish listeners understand that Jesus has always been a part of God's plan. David, even though he was awesome, even though he's great, died, went to the grave. But Jesus didn't suffer decay. He died and was raised again. That's, that's what, what Peter wants his hearers to understand is that Jesus has conquered death in a way that nobody else ever has. There's been no prophet or priest or king who has ever accomplished what Jesus has done. Jesus died as a part of God's predetermined plan, as a substitute that pays for our sins. Just like like the Old Testament sacrificial system was an example of, but Jesus' death is the perfect payment. And, again, Peter points out, Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. And his, His resurrection is evidence that death has been conquered. And it's no longer something that we need to fear. And that's why salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because no one else conquered death. No one else died in our place. Only Jesus. And just, and just so there could be absolutely no doubt about what He's saying here. Even though I think at this point, everyone who's listening would have clearly understood that Peter is saying that Jesus is God and Lord and Savior. But just to be super clear, Peter attests to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus, the one that you crucified, He is Lord. He is Savior. He is ruler. He is ultimate authority. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the the Messiah, the promised one, the one that we've been waiting for. We know that for certain. I mean, the language that Peter uses here is, is clear. We don't want you guys. To have any doubt, know for certain that's who this is. There is no question. Peter says, I and these other 11 apostles confess this truth. We bear witness to this fact. We are avowing to it as eyewitnesses. 
And by doing that, Peter is, is forcing his hearers and, and us to kind of make a decision, to kind of choose, are we going to believe that what he's saying is true? Are we going to believe his testimony about who Jesus is? Or are we going to reject it? The, the result of, of uh, the, the day of Pentecost here is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Right? Remember back in John 16, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come and one of the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do is bring conviction. When He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now look at uh, Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Oh, wow. It worked. Like, it worked. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. He empowered the apostles to be able to remember all the things that Jesus taught and to, and to be witnesses and to boldly proclaim Jesus. And, and He said that, that He was going to convict hearts. And He did. They're pierced to the heart. They're humbled. And they ask the next logical question, what do we need to do to take advantage of what you're talking about? If this is all true, and Jesus really is God, He really is the Savior, He really is a part of God's full plan, if that's really true, then what am I supposed to do about it? Like I knew what I was supposed to do before with the whole sacrifices and animals. and What am I supposed to do now? And Peter says to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His Word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter says, here's what you do. First, repent. Change. Change your mind. Change your direction. This involves confession of sin. Admitting that we're helpless to save ourselves. Admitting that our sin is an offense to God that, that puts a separation between us and Him. Humble repentance. That's step one. Step two is believe in Jesus. Peter instructs them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the, the act of baptism isn't some sort of like magic bath that we take that saves us or earns us anything. It's really the imagery behind baptism that matters. Baptism is an outward sign of repentance. Uh, it's, it's admitting that we're sinful and that we're dirty and that we need to be cleaned. But more, baptism is an act of faith and identification. It's an act that says to everybody who's watching that I am connected with this one in whose name I'm being baptized. I am identified with Jesus Christ. And it's picturing His death and burial as we go under the water and His resurrection. Those are the things that have saved me. That's what has made me right before God. 
It's that death and burial and that resurrection, and I want everybody else to know that. Repent. Be baptized as a sign of your faith in Jesus. And then, be forgiven. Because that's what repentance and faith in Jesus produces. Forgiveness of sins. And and I don't want us to miss that step in this process. Because I think sometimes people can feel genuinely bad about their sin and their behavior. And and repent. And I think that people could even believe that Jesus saves. It's a thing that He does. But still not believe that Jesus has forgiven their sins. All of them. Completely. Totally. I can't do that. I'm too bad. Ah, What if the sins I commit tomorrow are really bad? What if... ah, Not all of them. If you've confessed with your mouth Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, then you will be saved. All of those sins get forgiven. The past sins, even the ugly ones, even the ones that you hope nobody ever finds out about uh, your present sins, like the ones that you're thinking about right now in your head while you're sitting in church, your future sins, the things you haven't even thought up yet, but they're bad. All of those sins, every one of them, has been forgiven and atoned for by Jesus. Paid for. All of them. There's nothing that you add to that equation. When you repent and believe, it's at that point, that moment of salvation, that moment of conversion that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And to us, I think to us, like that part of things is no big deal because yeah, Holy Spirit comes, that's cool, that's great. I'm not really sure what's different or how that changes things or but to these jewish listeners that would have been a big deal that would have been astonishing the gift of the spirit is reserved again for prophets and priests and kings and important people and not for lowly folks like us there's no way peter makes it a point though to tell them that this promise is for you you get it you get the holy spirit you get some spirit and you and you and it's everybody For, it's for you and it's for your kids and it's even for all those people far off. It's for everyone. Everyone that God will call to Himself. It's not an exclusive club. Now salvation is wide open and so is the gift of the Spirit. All who repent and believe receive the exact same sealing, empowering, regenerating, filling of the Spirit. Again, that is, that is an awesome blessing. I like how Paul describes this whole process over in Ephesians chapter 1. This is one of those sections of Scripture that if I wasn't a wuss, I would have tattooed somewhere on my arm. But I am. Ephesians 1.13, In Him, in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, after hearing the Gospel, having also believed, you heard it and then you believed, said you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Once you did that, once you heard the Gospel, believed the Gospel, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, as a down payment, a guarantee. 
with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You belong to God because that Holy Spirit has sealed you. Man, that's awesome. I love every single word in that passage. Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee that we are God's possession. So, uh, repent. Believe in Jesus. Be forgiven. Receive the Holy Spirit. Is that it? Is that, is that, that's pretty much covers most of it. There's one more thing. One more thing that we need to do, and it's implied when Peter says that this promise is for you and for your children and for everyone who's far off. The final thing that we need to do is, is share this gift that we've been given with others. Go tell your family and your kids and your neighbors and everyone who's far off. Let everyone know what God has done through Jesus Christ. And there's this awesome gift of the Holy Spirit that can be poured out on everyone who believes. God, thank You again, Lord, so much for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that's contained in it. Uh, Thank You for what occurred there on the day of Pentecost. Thank You that You have filled us with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, even though we don't sometimes fully even understand what that means, what we know from Scripture, what that means is that we have been brought from death to life, that the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, that we have been sealed in You, that we are Your possession and there's nothing that can ever change that. Thank You, God, for that promise. And that we are empowered to do Your will. That's our desire. That we would have lives that would matter. That would have eternal value. And that would bring glory and honor to You in everything that we do and say and even think. Thank You, God, for all of these blessings that You've poured out on us through faith in Jesus Christ and the gift of Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.